So how do we distinguish between a true church and a false church? A true church has several distinguishing characteristics. In other words, a true church will have three marks, and a false church will not. Welcome to The Fox Den with Terry Fox. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to The Fox Den. In this episode, I want to talk about the three marks of the church. And with this in mind, the first thing I need to mention is that there are true churches and there are false churches. Now, this shouldn't be a mystery. Just because a church calls itself a church doesn't mean it's a church. After all, I can call myself Santa Claus, and that doesn't make me Santa Claus. So a church can call itself a church. That doesn't mean it's a church. I mean, it might have church in the name, the first church of wherever. In the United States, it may have filed legal papers for nonprofit status, and it may be recognized by the government as a church. But that doesn't mean it's a church. So how do you distinguish between a true church and a false church? Now, I know that there are some who don't like this discussion, true churches and false churches. I think they think it feels judgmental. After all, who am I to determine which church is true and which church is false? But again, there are true churches and there are false churches. Churches that look like, act like, function like a church, but is not a true church. So how do we distinguish between a true church and a false church? A true church has several distinguishing characteristics, and this is where the marks of the church come in. In other words, a true church will have three marks, and a false church will not. A true church does not necessarily exhibit these marks perfectly, but they will be present. You see, the church is made up of sinful people, and therefore the marks are often imperfect. Nevertheless, these marks will be present in a true church to some degree. So at this point, let's define church. What is a church? And the Westminster Confession breaks the church up into two parts, visible church and invisible church. The visible church is the gathering of people who belong to a church. So most churches have membership, and the member of the churches are the visible church. And this is what chapter 25 of the Westminster Confession says about the visible church. The visible church, which is also Catholic or universal under the gospel, not confined to one nation as before under the law, consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion and of their children, and is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. So basically, the visible church are those who come every Sunday. But this is different than the invisible church. The invisible church consists of true believers in Christ. And this is what chapter 25 of the Westminster Confession of Faith says about the invisible church. The Catholic or universal church, which is invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ the head thereof, and is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. So the churches that we attend on Sunday mornings are made up of true believers and non-believers. The invisible church are the true believers in Christ. The visible church are those who have made a profession of faith, But within the visible church, there are non-believers. 
So what that means is there are people who have made a profession of faith and they're not true believers. You may not even know who they are, but God does. Perhaps I could say it this way. The invisible church, the true believers in Christ, are in the visible church. But not everyone in the visible church is in the invisible church. Because not everyone in the visible church are true believers in Christ. Now, perhaps you heard a word that was concerning to you. Catholic. Catholic here doesn't mean the Roman Catholic Church. It simply means universal. So what the Confession of Faith is getting at is that the church around the world and throughout all time is the universal or Catholic Church. Well, now that we've defined church, let's take a moment to define mark, as in the three marks of the church. A mark is simply a characteristic or distinguishing feature. So a true church has three distinguishing features or marks. And what are these marks of the church? The preaching of God's word, the administration of sacraments, meaning baptism and the Lord's Supper, and church discipline. Now, I want to define preaching. We often think of any pastor up front as preaching, but this may or may not be the case. A guy behind a pulpit speaking to a crowd of people isn't necessarily preaching. You see, preaching is proclamation. In preaching, you proclaim the Word of God. You proclaim the good news of Christ. That's preaching. So why is preaching a mark of the church? Well, the proclamation of God's Word is evidence that God is present. Now, I've said this in several of my episodes, but when the Word of God is proclaimed, Jesus speaks. In fact, I talk about this in detail in episode 26. So if Jesus speaks when the Word of God is proclaimed, then Jesus is present. Now, perhaps you think I'm overstating my point here, but the Apostle Paul affirms the point that I'm making in Romans chapter 10, verse 14. And if you look at the second question in verse 14, you see what I mean. However, you need to look at this verse in the New American Standard. The point that Paul is making is that in order to believe in Jesus, you must hear the voice of Jesus. You don't simply hear about Jesus, you hear him in order to come to faith. That's the point that Paul is making. How are you going to believe in him whom you haven't heard? In other words, you can't believe in him if you haven't heard him. So how are you going to hear the voice of Jesus unless a preacher is sent? After all, Paul asks, how are you going to hear his voice without a preacher? In other words, you can't believe in Jesus unless you hear Jesus. And you can't hear Jesus unless a preacher is sent. So the preacher is the voice box of Jesus. And if the preacher is the voice box of Jesus, and Jesus is speaking, then Jesus is present. He's not merely speaking from heaven like I'm speaking to you through a microphone in a different place. Jesus is present with us when he speaks through the preacher. You see, he's in our midst. He's present with us as we hear his voice. Take a look at Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. Jesus said he is with us always to the end of the age. Furthermore, Jesus strengthens and nourishes the souls of his people when he speaks to us through his word. So when you go to church, don't think of it as you're in a church and Jesus is in heaven. You have to know that when the church comes together, Jesus is in our midst. And what's the evidence? You hear his voice through the preaching of God's word. He's with us. Because you can hear his voice. That's how you know. 
After all, his name is Emmanuel, which means God with us. We see that in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. So the next mark of the church is the administration of the sacraments, or baptism and the Lord's Supper. And it's important for us to see what happens in the sacraments. We typically think of the sacraments as something that we do. For example, we get baptized because Jesus told us to get baptized. Or we take the Lord's Supper to remember what Jesus has done for us. However, there's something far more significant going on in the sacraments. First, baptism is an initiation rite into the church. You see, not just anybody gets baptized. Only believers get baptized. In other words, we baptize those who make a profession of faith. We don't baptize them beforehand. We baptize them after their profession of faith. But for those of us who baptize infants, we do so based on the profession of faith by the parents. And the reason why is these are covenant children. They're already in the church. So we baptize them because it's an initiation rite. It's marked that they belong to the church. But there's something else that's significant going on here with baptism. When you were baptized, God marked you as his own. You see, baptism is a mark of ownership. Not that you're his slave. You're not his slave. You're his child. You're one of his people. But one of the things that distinguishes you from the world is your baptism. So God has marked you as his own. Maybe you could say it this way. How do you really know that you belong to God? Well, look at your baptism. Your baptism is proof that you belong to him. He marked you as his own. So baptism isn't really about something that you do. It's about what God has done for you, in you, and to you. Second, baptism is a sign that your sins are forgiven. Take a look at Acts 2, verse 38. There, Peter calls us to be baptized in the name of Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And then look at Acts chapter 22, verse 16. There, it calls us to be baptized and wash away our sins. So, baptism is a sign that your sins have been forgiven and that they have been washed away. And then third, baptism is a sign that you have been united to Christ. Take a look at Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. In verse 4, Paul tells us that we have been buried with Christ by baptism. And Paul says the same thing in Colossians chapter 2, verse 12, that we've been buried with him in baptism. So, baptism is a sign that you have been buried with Christ, which means you've been united to Christ. And Paul tells us plainly in verse 5 that we have been united to Christ in his death. So, baptism marks us as God's people and distinguishes us from the world. And with baptism, God marks us as his own and he confirms that our sins are forgiven and washed away. Now, let's turn our attention to the Lord's Supper. With the Lord's Supper, God confirms that our sins are forgiven because of the work of Christ on the cross. And through the Lord's Supper, God nourishes our souls. So as we take the Lord's Supper, the Holy Spirit works in us and strengthens our faith. Daniel Hyde calls the Lord's Supper the sacrament of nourishment. And his point here is that Christ feeds us and nourishes our souls with the body and blood of Christ as we take the Lord's Supper for our spiritual nourishment. So what we can see here is that the sacraments strengthen our faith. They confirm to us that we belong to God. It confirms to us that our sins are forgiven. You see, these aren't just some things that we do. God is communicating to us through the Lord's Supper, through baptism. He's telling us what he has done. He's claimed us as his own. He's forgiven our sins. He's united us to Christ. 
So you could say that one of the reasons why the sacraments are a mark of the church is because they communicate to us what God has done. He has marked us as his own, he's forgiven our sins, and he strengthens our faith. Now let's look at the final mark, church discipline. Now this is the mark that most people don't like. Now maybe that's a strong statement for me to make, but I don't find many people who like church discipline. And I'm not talking about the person being disciplined or the person disciplining. I'm talking about the third party that's an observer. I mean, elders who apply church discipline are often maligned because they apply church discipline. But this is one of their responsibilities. And people don't like it. They think the elders are being mean. I've heard that many times in church discipline cases. And I believe this is because of a faulty view of God. People often think that God is loving and kind. He would never want to hurt anybody's feelings. But if you read the Old Testament and you watch how God dealt with the people of Israel, he wasn't always gentle with them, but he was always loving. He disciplined them because he loved them. When my daughters disobeyed, we would discipline them. And we didn't discipline them with chocolate chip cookies or a new stuffed animal. Our daughters never liked the discipline because it was unpleasant to them. But we did it because we loved them. We disciplined them because we loved them. And the same is true with God. How do you know that God loves you? It's because the Bible tells you so? Well, that might be. But here's another indicator that God loves you. He disciplines you. He doesn't let you get away with sin. He disciplines you. And if God didn't discipline you, then he doesn't love you. Now, perhaps you think I'm making this up. But take a look at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 6 and 10. And there you see that the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he disciplines us for our own good. So God disciplines you because he loves you, and he does this for your good. You see, church discipline is an act of love, and people don't understand that. They don't get that. They just think that it's some elders being mean, but they're not. They're doing what they're supposed to. You see, there's three purposes of church discipline. Glorify God, purify the church, and reclaim the sinner. Now, Jesus gave us steps for church discipline. We see that in Matthew chapter 18. And starting with 15, we see the steps. And the first is you confront the sinner. And then if they don't repent, then you bring two or three others. And if they don't repent, you bring it to the church. And if they don't repent, then you excommunicate them. Now, it doesn't say here excommunicate. It says to let them be as a Gentile and a tax collector. But it's the same thing. But this is what you should see about church discipline. Jesus laid out for us a process that is patient and gracious. Notice that you don't excommunicate somebody or kick them out of the church on the first offense. You confront them. You give them the opportunity to repent. If they don't repent, then you bring two or three others. And if they don't repent, then you bring it before the church. Notice that you're not kicking somebody out because they didn't repent the first time. So church discipline is a gracious and patient process. The church may excommunicate somebody, which means they're going to kick them out of the church. They're going to remove them from church membership. And some people think this is unkind and unfair. They believe that God loves everyone and wouldn't want anyone to be kicked out of the church. But do you see what Jesus said? The persistently unrepentant person is to be treated as a Gentile and tax collector. In other words, you treat them like they don't belong in the church. And why does Jesus say this? 
because the persistent unrepentance indicates the person is a non-believer and doesn't belong to the church. Remember, the church is the people of God, and their persistent unrepentance reveals that they're not a believer. They're not part of God's people, so they don't belong in the church, and therefore that person is removed because they don't belong there. And also, you excommunicate when it reaches that point because of the purpose of church discipline, to glorify God, to purify the church, to regain the the sinner. Take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The church in Corinth had a major problem. A man had his father's wife. And Paul said, this stuff isn't even tolerated by the pagans. And yet, they allowed this to happen in the church. And what was Paul's guidance? Well, you see it in verse 5. Hand the man over to Satan for the destruction of his body so that his spirit might be saved. So Paul is saying, remove the man. He says that in verse 2. You see, it's not glorifying to God to allow this conduct to continue in the church. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not advocating that you just kick people out. I'm trying to show you that church discipline is a gracious and patient process And sometimes it reaches the point of excommunication. And this is an important point because people don't want to excommunicate people. Well, I don't think any of us do, but sometimes you have to. And you have to for the glory of God, and you have to for the purity of the church. And as Paul was advocating, you do so so that, or in hopes that, the sinner will repent and return. But if he's not a true believer in Christ, he'll never come back. And you don't want him back. Because the church is the people of God. So why is the study of the three marks of the church important? So first, it gives us a standard to distinguish true churches from false churches. Second, related to the first point, the three marks of the church give you a standard for a church that you should be looking for. So for example, so if you have the choice between a small church that's struggling Yet they faithfully preach the Word of God, they administer the sacraments, they practice church discipline, and your choice is between that and a large church that doesn't, then choose the small struggling church because the other church identified itself as a false church. What about the mega church that has upbeat music and a dynamic pastor? Or what about the church with a robust youth program and a fun children's program? Well, does the pastor faithfully proclaim the Word of God? Does the leadership of the church apply church discipline? If not, then it's safe to say that that church is not a true church, and that should be a sufficient answer for you of whether or not you should join that church. You see, many people typically look for the wrong things in a church. They look at the youth program, the children's program, the music, and things like that, and it seems the measure that we really look at is my satisfaction. But my satisfaction is the wrong thing to be looking for. I should be looking for the three marks of the church. And the three marks of the church, they shift our focus from what we want in a church to what we should be looking for in a church. It's okay to want a good youth program. It's okay to want a good children's program. It's okay to want good music. But these should not be our primary concern. You should look for a church that faithfully proclaims the Word of God that administers the sacraments on a regular basis, and it practices church discipline. That is a true church. That concludes this episode. If you have any questions, please email me at terry at 
If you enjoy The Fox Den, please leave a positive review and share this podcast with others. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe. The Fox Den is a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Thanks for listening. And remember, faith comes by hearing.